When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical bill expert, finding savings can seem impossible. Well, HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. So start saving with knowing where to look. Visit HealthLock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, we have just discovered an important note from space. The Martians plan to throw a dance for all the human race. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkebaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And uh, today we're going to talk about Aliens. It is time to talk about aliens yeah. on this podcast. We, you know, we, it's been a long time coming. We we talk about the future, and obviously the future involves aliens. Well, I mean, well, clearly the day we're the present re- probably the day. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the day we are recording this is the same day that NASA announced that the Voyager One spacecraft has officially entered interstellar space. Not like no the last time way. that yeah. the internet said that for yeah. reals. This, this time. time, yeah, because again, our 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 benchmark for what marks the end of our solar system and the beginning of interstellar space has changed frequently over the last 
10 years or so. But this um, time it's for real. This for time real it's for real. Yeah. yeah, essentially we're talking about plasma and the presence of interstellar plasma over solar plasma in the, uh, in, in the environment that that the Voyager 1 is traveling through and that now it's all the interstellar spaces plasmas party time. Sonified interstellar plasma, by the way, sounds an awful lot like Demon Sam Neill is coming for our souls. It actually, to me... It's, <laughs> I'm very yeah, concerned to, about this. To me, it sounds like what the fox says. Oh, no. Not like what the music video does, um, but what a fox actually says. That's fair. Okay. Because it sounds like it sounds like screaming. Um, but yeah, uh, it's uh, a, okay. it, it, yeah, because what NASA did was they, they translated the plasma frequencies into audible frequencies for us to hear, and they played it on their uh, live stream, and it was pretty creepy. Wow. Yeah. So but anyway, so we're, we're out there now. We're out there. We're, we're putting our, Voyager we're putting our, our, our hat on the table. Uh, for inter, interstellar space. Yeah. Yep. Well, We've, not intergalactic. Not an intergalactic. Yeah. No, sorry. Oh, uh, that was totally the wrong word. Interstellar. Interstellar, yes. yeah. Well, and, and it, it even has an, an album on board that has information about Earth, essentially things like greetings. It has music. It has pictures of Earth on it. It has, is, the, is that the Voyager? Yes, it is. Oh, okay. Yeah, yes, the Voyager the 1 disc. and Voyager 2 yeah. both have golden disc designed oh, by Carl awesome. Sagan. Well, okay, so that is designed to talk to aliens. Exactly. And... um. One interesting thing about that disc is, imagine you are commissioned to make it. Yeah, so I'm Carl Sagan. Yeah, how do you design something that would be comprehensible to an alien? Uh, it's a really you can't yeah. write in English on. You right. have to you have to make some serious assumptions about what an alien is going to find comprehensible. Exactly, and yeah. what you, and the way you would do that is by imagining what an alien might be like. Right, but. We don't know what an alien might be like. Yeah. And that's what we're about to speculate about. In fact, we're going to speculate wildly and with no evidence whatsoever. <laughs> oh, no. Th- there, there's evidence, uh, not in terms of uh, direct evidence of what there is, but evidence maybe suggesting what there might more or less likely be. They, sure. Based upon a sample size of one planet that has right. life on it. <laughs> yeah. So keep in mind that if you're looking at this from a scientific perspective as far as sample size goes, we have a sample size of one. So the, that, which that is means a pretty, I, pretty small number. research experiment. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, right. But so we can say that the chance of aliens being transformers is fairly low. Yeah, but I still hold out hope. <laughs> I mean, statistically, statistically, chances of transformers, Lauren. Um. Oh, I like an Earth truck. <laughs> that turned, hey, 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 hey. He was able to take the form of an Earth truck after landing on Earth. It's okay. not like that was his actual form back there. On- I'm, I, I cannot think of a number close enough to zero that's pronounceable <laughs> within the confines of our podcast time. You guys express. are breaking, okay. you're breaking okay. my heart, Fredo. Okay, so <laughs> so I think we should start with uh, the place where we would usually go to get images of what aliens might look like. We got to start with science fiction, sure, because th- that's what we got to work with right, right. now. Yeah. Right. Um, Lots of aliens uh, from science fiction, you might notice, have something in common. And I'm not going to say what it is yet, uh, but I'm going to start with after Transformers, there's, of course, my favorite sci-fi aliens, the Coneheads. Okay, <laughs> sure. That's a pretty, <laughs> sure. that's kind of hard sci-fi. Yeah, you know? no, that's that's right up there with Heinlein. Right yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's pretty classic. Right. Asimov, Heinlein, Coneheads. Yeah. They come from France. Yeah. 
Okay, go I ahead. I can easily imagine you as a conehead, by the it way. It does not take a lot of imagining. <laughs> it really just takes a little um, bit of, yeah, stretching, and that's it. So, but you take coneheads, and then you shrink down the head and add some hair and make them very handsome, and then you have cri- Kryptonians, like right. Superman. Sure. Right, sure. Uh, you put very some, symmetrical. You put mm-hmm. some uh, some some ridges along their forehead, and now you've got Klingons. Yeah, or you pointy up their ears, and then you've got Vulcans. Or Romulans. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, One thing all these really seem to have in common to me is that they all look basically like humans. Well, and if almost as though a human actor were put into some kind of makeup process. (laughs) That's fair. Uh, Um, In fact, lots of aliens in science fiction just straight up are humans. I know we've all seen Plan 9 from Outer Space. Yeah. Uh, Uh, Yes, fantastic. The aliens in that are humans wearing like medieval knight costumes. (laughs) Right. (laughs) They've got like a like a shield emblem on their tunic. Well, and then there's things like Battlestar Galactica, the 1978 version, obviously the superior one, where it's revealed that essentially the uh, the the people aboard the Battlestar Galactica, they're searching for Earth because they've heard that that's where humans are are dwelling and that they themselves are human. So apparently the human race in that sense is distributed across the galaxy. Oh, or in Star Wars, which took place as we all know, uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far far, far, far away. away. Yeah. Well, and and um, Star Wars actually has some interesting aliens that are not human looking but are still humanoid, meaning that they still have, you know, they they still tend to be bipedal. Yeah. They have, you know, a torso, arms, legs and a head and then they might look a little funky but basically but have they're human. Basic- yeah. Bilateral symmetry. Exactly. Uh, A lot of aliens also uh, fit into that category. Think, for example, like of Predators. Sure. The Predator from the Predator movies. These are basically like, they're like alien Ted Nugents. And they they just go from planet to planet killing wildlife, I guess. I was wondering where you're um, going with that, but now I got gotcha. you. Uh, I'm caught up. Yeah, uh, uh, but they're but they're so human when you look at them, except they got a weird kind of bug face. What? But or the even, even, or something from Doctor Who, yeah. Right. Even the xenomorphs from Alien, you know, they, they tend to move on. Most of them are basically bipedal right. and bilaterally sim- yeah, they, symmetrical. Yeah, they might move on all fours at times, but they still, when they stand up, they are essentially the human form. I think the aliens actually are a little more interesting than that because they're not purely anthropomorphic. They also incorporate um, insect hive behavior, sure, I think, sure. in, a, in an interesting way. And I think we can come back to that when we talk about some of the, the more plausible theories of what advanced alien life might look like. Well, also, also, they're not squishy the way that, say, a Klingon is or something like that. They, <laughs> I have got... never tried to hug a Klingon, so I don't know <laughs> yeah. how squishy they can be. They, they, they've, they've got an exoskeleton oh, I see and their saying. blood is, is uh, acid. Acid, yeah. right? Yeah, and the yeah. floor is lava. Right. Uh, so um, there's but, also the... the, the the tendency that aliens will sometimes have multiple organs. For example, uh, time lords have two hearts. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh-huh. I think Klingons do too, actually. I'm pretty sure Klingons have two hearts. Don't quote me on that. That's me just referencing my, yeah, my memory of Star Trek. Uh, but there are a lot of different variations of that where you find out, you know, like, I think, um, uh, you find out Dr. Zoidberg in Futurama has uh, several different copies of organs in his body. <laughs> Okay, what do you think are the stupidest sci-fi imaginations of alien, <laughs> of alien anatomy? No, all right, so alien anatomy, what are the dumbest? Um, I think, well, going back to the xenomorph, seeing the mouth within the mouth was a little weird. Oh, uh, I like it. I mean, it's a cool, it's a cool effect. I just don't know about the actual 
evolutionary right. pathway that that would happen. But then again, you look oh. at some insects and they have some pretty pretty weird proboscis yeah, that, type that stuff. That doesn't seem all that implausible nah, to me. It seems a little weird to me. The the acid blood also seems a little weird to me. Eh, I don't know. <laughs> I can see it. Uh, here, here's what I would go. I would go with basically all the ones that are exactly humans that speak English, of course. Um, but then also, if well, that was, that was always like a Babel fish or something like yeah. that. That's yeah, universal right. right, 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 right. Uh, Ford Prefect. Uh, I hate to say it because he's so wonderful, but but ET doesn't make any sense. I mean, ET has the problem of the okay, so we're just sort of like uncritically going basically humanoid. It's it's bipedal. With, with a face like ours and the same shape and all that, except he's like melted and he has magic powers. <laughs> like he can, he can it's, it's magic. It's the magic powers part that yeah. really sets you off. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Superman's the same way though. You know, basically sure. Actually, yeah, su- with Superman, magic powers. Yeah. The entire concept that the radiation from our sun could, could cause superpowers in an alien. Particularly human. flight. There's no mechanism there. Yeah. yeah. What do you think's the stupidest, Lauren? Um, I, I didn't, I didn't actually, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with Kryptonians, really, okay, yeah. if we're gonna be well, honest. See, I, I wanna go with some of the more it. crazy ones, cause yeah, human ones I just dismiss out of hand, because, you know, I mean, that's, see, yeah. I think tribbles so, are totally plausible. I'm not going with tribbles, I'm okay. not thinking those are stupid. I'm just saying. Like, well, I'm trying to think of one that I'd really go with. Hold on to that thought, because maybe it's time for us to transition to talking about the actual science behind this, and, and what are some, uh, things that might actually be more plausible than other things, according to to some thinkers. Right, well, because a, a lot of thought has been put into this kind of thing. I mean, even just when we're trying to classify life on Earth, we start really having to hit up some hard definitions, like whether or not a virus is alive and stuff like sure, that. Sure, yeah. Uh, and uh, to be fair, if we're going to talk about intelligent life, there are some who argue... Uh, I mean, there's some some uh, scientists who argue that the bipedal humanoid form is possibly what we'll encounter. Now, there are others who argue very much against that. But one of the proponents is Cambridge University paleontologist Simon Conway Morris, who sort of has expressed a, a, an argument that the bipedal form is almost like an evolutionary inevitability. Like that is just huh. a, it is a basic form that evolution pushes toward. It's bold words. I, it, it, well, I'm paraphrasing to be fair. Uh, but, <laughs> but also he feels that if we were to find alien, intelligent alien life, he would not be surprised if that alien intelligent life appeared as a bipedal humanoid kind of figure. Now, uh, there are others who say that this is this is an example of uh, Protagoras's bias. Uh, Protagoras was a, a Greek philosopher, uh, a predecessor to uh, Socrates. Right. Um, and Protagoras said that uh, man is the measure of all things. So essentially measuring everything against mankind. And that, that in, uh, other people have pointed out Think, saying that's really a, a logical fallacy, you know, to sit there just and just kind of an anthropocentric. Well, sure. Well, I mean, at that point in time, we did think that the entire universe literally revolved around the planet Earth. <laughs> well, yeah. so most of us did. Uh, I was not really that vocal back in that day, but <laughs> um, so, so there are some considerations I think that that we could give to this. The idea, well, what if they do look like bipedal humanoids? Uh, in our sample size of one, that did happen. <laughs> yeah, um, but it and only... so we know that it's we know that it's plausible. Whereas we don't know that other uh, advanced intelligent 
uh, body forms are plausible. Uh, well, sure. However, we do. I mean, the the emotional and intellectual maturity of some other non bipedal animals on on Earth, like uh, like cuttlefish or octopus or dolphins mm-hmm. or um, whales, lawyers, lawyers. That was mean, Jonathan. <laughs> sorry. Um, you know, are like like to the point where they're certainly as as intelligent as our young before their brains develop past pubescence. Well, and um, and also a lot of the critics that uh, that Morris has and others like Morris, not just Morris. I mean, Morris is one person who has this this uh, belief, but a lot of the critics say that, uh, like Michael Shermer, for example, says that uh, it's almost an impossibility that intelligent alien species would resemble a bipedal primate, uh, because in Earth's own history, only one species ever developed into that bipedal mode. We don't see examples of this, like a reptile version or a, uh, a fish version, which you wouldn't expect anyway, just because of the environment. But at any rate, we don't see anything other than this one branch having developed that particular uh, that particular model. And therefore, if you're talking about a planet where that's only ever happened once, then the possibility of that happening somewhere else may be even lower. So who knows? Maybe the intelligent life on another planet, particularly, say, let's say it's one that has mostly covered in water, would not look anything like a bipedal humanoid. Uh, Carl Sagan made that same argument. In fact, he said that uh, intelligent species may live on the land or in the sea or the air. They may have unimaginable chemistries, shapes, sizes, colors, appendages, and opinions. We are not requiring that they follow the particular route that led the evolution led to the evolution of humans. There may be many different evolutionary pathways, each unlikely, but the sum of the number of pathways to intelligence may nevertheless be quite substantial. I think those are good points. I do want to stick up for one sort of strange uh, take on bipedalism, uh, which is that I think I would favor bipedalism or, say, uh, quadrupedalism over tripedalism. Uh, If you see, like, uh, well, not the organisms themselves in uh, War of the Worlds, but the sort of the rovers they use are these three-legged things. things. But I just realized this is really interesting. According to a 2011 paper, um, there are about 8.7 million distinct eukaryotic species on Earth. That was their estimate. Mm -hmm. Not one of these species, and this isn't from the paper. This is just, that was for that number. Not one of those 8.7 million species that we know about is tripedal. Right. Wow. No three-legged organisms. There's like there's like a fish that sometimes props itself up on two fins and a tail, you know, something like that. But there's nothing with three legs. Well, life as we know it on on Earth evolved from hypothetically a, a common ancestor or mm-hmm. maybe a few common ancestors uh, independently across the globe, depending on which theory you, you want to prescribe to. But um, it would only follow that all life on our planet would follow the same basic design. Well, we, well, I mean... It, I think you're there is yeah. certainly convergent evolution, which is this idea that you get to the same basic kind of uh, of body types and even behavioral types uh, in different parts of the world, even when the species that are concerned have no actual uh, contact genetic link right. until yeah. you get back to that ancient, 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 ancient ancestor. Right. And I, I think so th- there's there's two sides to this story also i i think convergent evolution is interesting in that it shows that uh 
different animals in different environments can evolve the same characteristics. Sure. Which is one thing that might give us a reason to think, well, okay, maybe aliens could look like humans, but also they're starting with the same biochemistry. Right. And here, this leads us into another interesting question um, about what this alien life could look like. Should we expect that it's basically going to have the same chemical basis as life on Earth? And I've heard good arguments on both sides of this. Well, um, that that basically, if there's going to be something as organized and complex as as life as we know it, it needs to be carbon based. Well, and that argument is hard to make, right? Because we live on a carbon rich planet. Yeah. So if you were if we were from some other planet that was silicon rich and we were silicon based, we would be making that mm. same argument. Perhaps we may be saying, well, clearly any intelligent life out there would be silicon based because look at us and look at how these things developed. Uh, and it's because we don't have anything we can point to right now. It's very I, I would not go so far as to say it's likely that whatever life we do encounter, assuming that we one day encounter it. And I imagine that one day we will. If we haven't wiped ourselves out, then I'm pretty sure it'll happen. Um uh, then I, you know, I don't know if how likely it is one way or versus the other. I think it all depends upon. Well, it depends upon many things. It depends upon the the actual physical properties of the planet that life was originally from, or asteroid or whatever it happens to be that supports that life. The moon, whatever. That not our moon, but a moon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't expect us to find any life on our moon. But uh, yeah, it's just. I think it's going to be one of those things where. The circumstances will really dictate it. And what, what also is interesting is not just what, you know, what, how chemically they are, are based, like whether it's carbon based, silicon based, or something else, but also how they pass on information. Now, when the way we understand life is that it's this process where we have, uh, and this, even this gets a little tricky because we talk about things like viruses. Uh, but, you know, a basic life, we th- talk about cells passing on information. And that's the process of life. We have, if the cells did not pass on information, you would not have any sort of cohesion or evolution. You have to have this progression for cells to pass information along so that descendants will continue to develop uh, beyond their ancestors. In, so, in humans, that's uh, proteins, amino acids that yeah. are, that are storing and transmitting this, this yeah. data, but that doesn't necessarily need to be what would do that. Well, yeah, we're, we, I mean, it is according to us. We, but. yeah, we think of it as DNA because that's mm-hmm. pretty much how almost all, all, everything we call life passes on information. Viruses are a little bit different. Uh, and again, there's argument about whether or not viruses count as being alive or not. It all depends upon whom you ask. But, uh, you know, there was a lot of debate for a very long time. And in fact, there's still debate about, is this the only way that cells, as we understand them, could pass along information? Uh, what's interesting is that there's work by a fellow by the name of Philip Holliger, of uh, the MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge, the United Kingdom. That's why I said laboratory, because, you know, right, out of sure. respect of, for the, our friends across the pond. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and he experimented with molecules to see if it was possible to create a mechanism for passing 
uh, genetic information from one cell to another, but not use DNA or RNA mm. to create something new. And he actually started to experiment with XNA, which stands for xenonucleic acids, using different sugars than the ones you would actually find in uh, DNA or RNA, and discovered that you could actually create a mechanism for passing along information from one cell to another using this completely separate uh, mechanism. I mean, it it worked on a similar principle as DNA and RNA, but a totally different structure. And mm. so now there's an interesting debate about, well, now that we understand that there are other ways of having this happened, why did DNA and RNA become the way that it happens with life on Earth? Does that mean that it is the best way of passing this information? Was there perhaps at some time life on Earth that used this other method? And in fact, did that just die out because it was not advantageous to have that and survive? Or was it just a thing about what sugars happened to be available at the same time that life itself was forming? So this, these are questions that are, are fascinating, and we do not have answers for them, but people are working very hard to study it now because now there are these other possibilities out there where before we didn't even know these possibilities existed. It's also interesting because it points out the fact that there is the possibility that, that some alien race has a different methodology for passing along information at whatever basic level uh, they would require for their kind of life. And really what gets interesting is when we start looking at the possibility that life in an alien world would look so different to us than the way we consider life here that we wouldn't even recognize it as life. Yeah, all of the options we've talked about so far and that we'll probably continue to talk about are are basically corporeal in a way we recognize like sure. that they it's basically a body with some kind of brain type organ that exists in the three dimensions as we understand them. Oh, you bring up dimensions. So mm-hmm. I've got a really quest a question about this, okay? Okay. So I'm a big fan of Buckaroo Banzai. <laughs> and uh, the, the aliens... I've been ionized, but I'm okay now. <laughs> <laughs> the aliens fr- in, uh, from the movie, the Peter Weller movie, the Buckaroo Banzai movie. Which um, is excellent. The John Lithgow movie. Oh, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, <laughs> Lazardi was the best character. Oh, the best. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... The, the aliens like Dr. Lazardo and, yeah. uh, and John Smallberries. Um, Big booty. Yeah. They claim to be not from another planet, but from another dimension. Right. I've actually heard about this in all kinds of old sci-fi. They're aliens from another dimension. But what I'm wondering is, is this concept even coherent? Does this make sense? Could there actually be aliens from another dimension? Or is that just some kind of like babble that they put into sci-fi? Yeah. Whether or not the concept is coherent, I think you could argue that the movie certainly isn't. Well. It's amazing. <laughs> I love it. But coherent well, may be going far. Let's put that movie aside oh, for a second. Okay. Oh, I don't want to. Lauren, do you um, know anything about extra dimensional aliens? All right. So so the thing, the thing with us is that uh, futurists like like Michio Kaku have pointed out that our existence is is very much like um like carp swimming in a pond and and what we see around us the, the world as we can perceive it is limited by our our senses and and how we how we use them you know like evolutionarily speaking it was worthwhile for us to develop sight because tigers could could run at us yo um but tigers can't move through time aside from that you know basic linear way that we all do so learning to, to to visualize something like the fourth dimension was never 
was never a, an, an evolutionary uh, good thing. There's, there's, <laughs> it was not advantageous. It's never a survival advantage. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, so if if we're all carps and ponds, mm-hmm. right? Okay. And or in, in a single pond, yeah. Let's say. Okay. And all we know is the water and the lilies and anything beyond the lilies. You know, we can't even conceive of. Yeah. As carp scientists, we're looking we're looking at that ceiling and going like that is the edge of our universe. Mm-hmm. If a hand reaches down into that pond and plucks a carp out, what's that carp going to think about that? It's going to think this is a god. This is an incredible interdimensional experience that I'm having. And, and then rapidly thereafter, I can't breathe. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, uh, it's it's kind of similar to the to the flatland example. Um, oh yeah, I love that book. Right, right, uh, and which which basically says that. If um that if if there was a, a two dimensional creature mm-hmm. that we could we could look in on and reach down to imagine we, you're a square ima- imagine you're a square not a cube but a square but a square and and a, and a human hand reaches into your square universe and starts poking around on your insides because we as humans can see in three dimensions and and recognize that this outline of the square is not a skin but but rather an outline. Mm-hmm. How does that square cope with with something that has three dimensions? It can't. It doesn't understand them. See, this is where we lead into uh, some of the weird fiction as well. So not just science, but weird fiction has looked into this sort of stuff, like Lovecraft and the non-Euclidean geometry and the idea that even to look upon these other dimensional beings would be to invite insanity because our brains cannot process that kind of information. He was a big fan of people going mad, wasn't he? He kind of was. That was sort of a... uh, That was a Yaya Cthulhu Fatagan kind of thing, (laughs) yeah. Um, but you know, but things like like string theory predict that the universe does in fact have more dimensions beyond the four that we know how to perceive, um, ten yeah. or eleven or 11. some other. Yeah, it all number depends upon that, which one. It's mm-hmm. usually a, eleven is the one I hear the most frequently. That's one of my favorite lines from a, a certain television show, which is that uh, at least in my universe, I don't need eleven dimensions to make the math come out right. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, you know, and, and futurists and, and theoretical physicists, I think, would argue about the string theory that, you know, that the math does work. The, the math that we know, you know, like, like Einstein's gravity equations or Maxwell's eight uh, electromagnetic equations can, in fact, predict the existence of, of these other dimensions. And just that we are literally incapable of conceiving of a being that exists across them because... Yeah, we can't even detect them other than using math to say, well, if they exist, then this math makes sense. Right. right. So right. there's no yeah. way that we can physically observe them or measure them in any way. Uh, we can only, uh, I even hesitate to say theorize. It's more like a hypothesis because there's no way of testing it. There's no way to observe it. So, and we're, we're gonna, we have string theory as a potential topic that we'll talk about in the future where we're really gonna dive into this. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's the real difficult thing when we're talking about these, uh, the, this concept of extra dimensional beings because uh, we are limited in our perception. We do not have the capability of perceiving things. If these dimensions do in fact exist, we don't know how we would ever see them. Unless they presented themselves to us like the Q continuum do in, in Star Trek The Next Generation and, and, and future uh, series other than that, where wherein, you know, the, they, these are basically at least four or five dimensional creatures who happen to sometimes show up looking like a person in order to not break our brains. So they can they can appear as if they were of our dimension and look like John Delancey. 
specifically like John Delancey. Hey, okay. Okay. So <laughs> I'm getting it. So basically, it is a coherent concept. It is maybe possible, but we just don't know. There's no. We, we by definition, do not know. Yeah. yeah. We cannot know. At least not right now. Mm-hmm. Maybe one day we can know. We can. We may not be able to ever uh, observe it directly, but it'll be like something that's outside our visual spectrum, where we can design something that can interpret that and then translate it into something we can see. Okay, so let's imagine that uh, the aliens that we encounter somewhere out there in the galaxy mm-hmm. are um, – they're basically uh, like us physically. You know, the, not that they are shaped like us, but they're three-dimensional. Okay. Have corporeal bodies. Okay. Um, I guess that's a redundancy. Um, <laughs> they are corporeal. They're not yeah. like some sort of mist or energy that, yeah. that is otherwise uh, something that would be difficult for us to interact with. They're not electromagnetic what, waves. Right? Yeah. What are some ways that they might look? Oh, that's a good question. Well, well all, I, again, and heavily, I think, would depend upon the environment they came from. Right. Uh, so... One uh, thing that I think is really interesting is to think about uh, because every we tend to think about animals as water based and land based, and we can talk about those options in a minute if you want. But I think one really interesting option is the idea of a creature that evolves to live on uh, within the atmosphere of a gas planet. Gotcha. Okay. If you imagine, so like a creature that um, that never needs to set foot or I don't know tentacle, whatever, right. on a on, on a tense environment, so like the water or ground, but exists in flotation. Sure. I mean, keeping in mind that planets come in all shapes, sizes, densities, right? You know, you yeah, got and a lot of the planets out there are obviously going to be gas planets. Mm-hmm. Right, sure. And there's there's going to be planets out there that will have incredibly dense atmospheres. So when we think of an atmosphere, of course, we're thinking about Earth's atmosphere. And even if you've done something like you know, gone mountain climbing and you felt the experience of being in a, a thinner atmosphere. Uh, it's hard to imagine being someplace where you have a really, really thick atmosphere to the point where you could imagine a being that could support itself uh, through that atmosphere. Because, you know, atmosphere essentially is a fluid, right? Where it's gas moves, has fluid pro- properties. It's mm-hmm. obviously not a liquid, but it does move like a, it is. It has fluidic movement. So the dynamics it, are basically the same. Fluidic, yeah, yeah exactly. It'll, it'll fill up a container and, and assume the shape of the container, that kind of thing. Um, so you, I can imagine a being that could exist in such a place, assuming, of course, that the the uh, atmosphere is thick enough to support such a thing. I mean, it, it's an interesting question to wonder about how uh, complex such a life form could become. And uh, as, depending, again, upon the density of the atmosphere, I don't know that there's necessarily an upper limit to that. I could picture something uh, kind of amoeba-like on a, on a larger scale existing in, in an atmosphere like that. Yeah, or, I mean, uh, you could Im- potentially imagine a creature that uh, that suspends itself by ballooning. Sure, right? Sure. By like uh, taking in and releasing gases mm-hmm. sure. um, that maybe survives by photosynthesis or chemosynthesis of the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, 
I, I think it's really interesting because there, as far as I can tell, there's really no reason a creature like that shouldn't exist. Well, yeah, especially when you start looking at some of the really odd creatures on Earth that we've discovered in extreme environments, like in the in fissures in the Earth underwater, where you would imagine normally that no life could exist there due to extreme temperatures and very lack of sunlight, lack of sunlight, extreme toxic toxicity of certain mm-hmm. chemicals. But it turns out. That there are life forms that can exist and thrive in those environments. Right, sure. Well, I mean, there, there are bacteria that can that can split hydrogen sulfide from the water to feed themselves, which then feed giant mutant tube worms, which then feed all kinds oh, of yeah. other... Who needs the sun? <laughs> right, I mean, which sun. is interesting it can, because... It can, you know, go to heck. But if, you, if, you, if you go back, but if you go back a few decades, you would have reached, you would have talked to a biologist, and a biologist would say that ultimately all life comes from the sun. And if you were to point at these, uh, these examples, you know, bring that biologist into the modern era and show those examples to him Right. Her. These are all discoveries from the past what, 30 years, 40 yeah, years. Yeah. So. yeah. So you'd have to go back, you know, a few decades. But once you did that and you brought them forward, uh, they'd probably run from the room screaming. Yeah. You, yeah. One, I mean. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, no. no I was, I was going to add one of my other favorite bacteria because um, I have favorite bacteria um, can can yeah. it, can exist in uh, in springs where the temperature exceeds the point of boiling water. Yeah. And so those springs would be hot springs. Hot. <laughs> Yes, but that's not the, the technical terms. <laughs> oh, is it? <laughs> I, <don't. laughs> I have no, no idea. The technical term is "ouch." Yeah, <laughs> those springs are exceedingly hot. Uh, well, well and, and you know there was well, all. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I'm just saying. Yeah, um, these uh, bacteria like these are, are what we would call extremophiles. Sure, they survive in extreme environments, and typically these days, if you talk to an astrobiologist. What a lot of them will say is, well, when we're looking at what alien life might look like, a good place to start is looking at extremophiles because they can survive in environments that are uh, far more not, hostile. Yeah. Um, so it, you imagine like a very cold or a very hot planet or something with, you know, a corrosive chemical environment. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. or or even that kind of thing. I mean, you know, I I think that the development of life as we know it in a situation like that would be certainly difficult. But if you look at. Uh, one of one of my other favorite bacteria is um, the uh, <laughs> Lauren's favorite bacteria is a uh, Clostridium botulinum. That's what causes yeah. uh, botulism, and 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 this is one of many bacteria that is intolerant of oxygen, which there is quite a lot of um, really on the planet Earth. But um, but when it is in an oxygen rich environment, it, it creates this kind of spore around itself that lets it hibernate until it gets into say your gut and uh, and 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 lacks that oxygen and can breed again. Yeah. And it's, you know, life life is impressive. It does weird stuff. I was also going to mention the fact that, you know, on Earth we have we have a few luxuries on Earth that really make life possible, at least life as we know it. Um, the the oxygen in our atmosphere is one of them. The the distance we have from our sun is another. That Goldilocks zone. No, yeah. it's funny just to point out real quickly, we adapted to oxygen sure. because the Earth wasn't always uh, an oxygen-rich environment. That was created by the uh, by the explosion and of plant plants, life. Right? Right? Sure, um, sure. And so originally, oxygen was a it's a corrosive element, you know. In its natural state, it can be sort of poisonous and not great for complex molecules. 
Right. So, um, but, but 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 as life as we know it, right. <laughs> for the kind of life forms that we evolved into, uh, there are certain things about Earth that make it that make it Cushy. what it is. Makes it yeah. yeah. It gives us that. And another one is the magnetosphere. Right? Oh yeah. So the magnetosphere is the magnetic field around the Earth. Uh, and it, uh, ends up protecting us from being bombarded by tiny little subatomic particles. Uh, essentially we're talking about radiation here. Mm-hmm. But in this case, we're talking about the radiation of particles, not necessarily, uh, energy beams or, or rays or anything like that. Yeah. If you, um, if you go to a planet without a magnetosphere, you're probably going to be a hurting. Yeah, I'm guessing that's where the kaiju come from. <laughs> oh, from the, yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. So, uh, anyway, so, uh, yeah, ionized radiation. So we got these ionized these these ions, these particles, subatomic particles that are very high energy that can collide with stuff. And if it collides with something like a person, then it has the potential to do some damage, on at least on the cellular level. If it's intense enough, it can do some serious damage. But even a mild exposure to this kind of stuff can lead to things like developing cancer because it can mutate the cells. Even right. through the magnetosphere, we, we, I mean, you know, it's, it's recommended that you wear some sunblock kids, you know, it's, it's still yeah. pretty yeah. powerful stuff. Of course, ultraviolet radiation is, a, uh, you know, electromagnetic radiation, not the uh, not little the, particles, sure. but, but yeah. same sort of idea. Mm-hmm. So the magnetosphere, it repels these particles. It, it protect the, the Earth's atmosphere and the magnetosphere together protect us a lot from radiation. Yeah. Uh, like you said, Lauren, not all radiation because some of it get, does get through, but it protects us from a lot of it, which is why uh, life can is exist. yeah, life is possible. We pointed out in our our episode about a Mars colony that we wouldn't have the luxury of that magnetosphere on Mars. Mars does not have a magnetosphere, so we would have to make allowances for that, and that's why the Martian colony that's been proposed would largely be underground because the soil would end up being a protective barrier from that radiation. Um, the reason why the Earth has a magnetosphere is that we have we have a the core of Earth. We've got the inner core and the outer core, right? Mm-hmm. Joe and I had this discussion already. Yeah, we snipped at each other yeah. over email. But you but did. but inner the inner core, like Joe pointed out, the inner core is solid iron. Uh-huh. So that that would by itself would not create a magnetosphere. In fact, there are a lot of planets out there that we suspect have solid cores. But our planet has an outer core that is molten. And it's molten mixture of metals. And through convection, this movement due to heat and pressure, we have these fluctuating magnetic fields. And then we create the mag- – that. Well, we – the Earth has a magnetosphere. <laughs> and we don't have someone down there who's like, ooh, I better get on that magnetosphere or else everyone's going to be burning up. You mean Jules Verne was lying to us? <laughs> <laughs> so there, are, there's a very good possibility that we might discover life on a planet that does not have a magnetosphere, which means that the animals, assuming that their life forms are similar to the ones that have evolved here on Earth, would have to have some measure of protection against this kind of radiation. Oh, that's really interesting because I've never heard of an organism that is immune to radiation. Does such an organism exist? Uh, you know, that's an excellent question. I mean, I, there, we use a blast of radiation to, say, like, clear a packaged food product of all living organisms inside. Yeah, I would imagine that uh, – I would, well, here, I'll never say never. I am not aware of such an organism, but I'm not saying that one doesn't exist because there clearly could be one that I'm not aware of. But – Thinking, assuming that most life forms would have to have some protection because you're talking about 
on a on a molecular level. You know, mm-hmm. the DNA within a, a cell can be altered by this type of radiation, yeah, which means crazy. that you could create mutations that could potentially kill a creature. You'd have to have some sort of protection against that. Yeah, you'd have to think that it would have to be based on some sort of robust chemistry that yeah. was that, that could withstand having uh, subatomic particles knocked out of place yeah. every now and it then. It would have to have some sort of genetic modifi- or genetic um, evolutionary advantage that would allow it to address cellular mutation. To, to adapt so quickly. that Or to be able to replace damaged cells very quickly. Right, right. Uh, it also would likely... There's there's been a lot of suggestion that it would likely have some sort of either shell that would protect it, you know, either an exoskeleton or some other form that would protect it from radiation, or perhaps it would live underground. So again, using the the, the ground of the planet itself to protect it from radiation, or it could be a combination of the two. Or where, if it emits its own radiation that cancels out the waves. <laughs> so it's nice. It, so the animals are reversing the polarity. Yes. Oh. <laughs> High five. Yeah, yeah, you either reverse the polarity (laughs) or you divide by zero. Um, (laughs) That's another interesting point, though. What about what about artificial life? What about exactly robots? Something I wanted to talk about. Um, What if it's the case where when we encounter alien intelligence, we don't encounter the life itself? Maybe it's totally extinct or maybe it's very far away. But. All we're going to have access to is its technology. Well, here's that's again bringing us right back to the beginning of this episode where we talked about the Voyager, right? Yeah. And the likelihood of an alien encountering the Voyager is incredibly small. I mean, we're talking, you know, space is big. Really, really big. big. <laughs> you might think it's jaunt down to the chemist, but that's just peanuts compared to space. Um, yeah, it's it's space is enormous. So the likelihood of any alien race, intelligent or otherwise, coming into contact with the Voyager is incredibly tiny. But uh, when you think about it, using robots to explore, to send those out and to gather information and to bring it back, that. That makes a lot of sense to us. So there is the potential that that can make sense to other alien civilizations that also have attained that level of technological uh, expertise. So it's possible that the Voyager is going to go rub elbows with a uh, alien version of the Voyager. And, yeah, or you know, that, or that the first encounter we ever have happens to be with some sort of probe, alien probe. Similar, exactly. Sure. Uh, it Th- that hopefully would seems not be highly likely to me. It, more it, likely than encountering an yeah. intelligent alien species. Well, I. Think in a spaceship that knows how to blow up specifically like the White House because yeah. they know it's important. <laughs> right. right. Now again, some Independence Day stuff in here. You know, what I'd have to say is that for my money, I think SETI's probably got it right in that if we're going to encounter a first sign of an alien species, I think it's very likely that it would be some kind of signal on the electromagnetic spectrum. Well, yeah, because again, um, you think because about... Because the electromag... Like, radio isn't just arbitrary. Like, the electromagnetic spectrum is, like, fundamental to the physics of the universe. As and, we understand them. Yeah. And it's still going to exist, you know, at the other side of this galaxy. Sure. Yeah, well, and also the idea that... Unless the alien race has discovered some means of traveling toward, you know, near or at or greater than the speed of light, uh, you know, unless they happen to be really close neighbors and we've just been really bad about detecting them, it would take thousands and thousands of years for them to ever get to a point where we would be able to interact with them in a meaningful way. And that's one of those things that uh, people who believe in 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 extra dimensional beings start talking about. You know, it. 
if if a civilization achieves either the ability to to move through other dimensions or if they exist in them to begin with, um, that we're more likely hypothetically to run into those because of the speed of, of communication. If they can mm. just pop by because time is meaningless to them, then right. You know. Well, and space would be too. Sure. You know, it's right. we're talking about the 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 factors that define our perception of reality wouldn't matter to them necessarily. Uh, well, I wouldn't say meaningless, but it would be more easily navigable. Right. The, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, t- time as we know it would be meaningless. It's to all right. wibbly wobbly. If it's uh, as easy for them to navigate time as it is for us to go forwards and backwards, then the TARDIS just shows up, and yeah, right. And then we run because everyone knows when the Doctor shows up, stuff's about to go down. <laughs> Especially at Christmas. If it's Christmas and the Doctor shows up, just just go inside. Don't go back out. And, and unless you're you're a particularly attractive young lady, um, in which case you become a companion for yeah. the next season. Yeah, okay. and then you die. Things don't turn out well for you. No. <laughs> no. Anyway, okay, so spoiler now, alert. now that we've talked about uh, these uh, these different plausibilities, I want to come back to the sci-fi visions. What do we now think are the most plausible? If we just had to go with our gut, as Carl you, Sagan said, he would not. If you say coneheads, I'm going to slap. <laughs> it's you. probably coneheads. I think it's got to be. Right? Uh, no, well, what do you imagine uh, now? I respect it was Carl Sagan, right? Who said that he didn't want to guess like he, he didn't want to think with his gut whether or not there was alien life out there. Uh, uh, yeah. But we're going to we're going to go against that now and, and use our guts. OK, because our guts, our guts. <laughs> did it. Did, do you have it? Wow. Uh, golly, <laughs> this is such a tough question because I do want to couch everything in the idea that because we're working from just one sample it is really you know ridiculous to try and draw conclusions but um i'm going to say that the most likely uh, physical appearance of any alien would be hugo weaving <laughs> <laughs> that's my answer um nice. i i don't have anything less sarcastic to say i, I was i was going to say like like krang from teenage mutant ninja turtles but oh. but that's yeah uh, we're we're too afraid. We will I, not. I, I mean, I, 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 you know, seriously, something like the the alien xenomorphs wouldn't really shock me. Yeah. Um. You know, something something that shock the heck out of me, man. <laughs> Game over. <laughs> yeah. I I agree, actually, to to some extent, because of the insectoid right sort of characteristics. Yeah. And look at the the way insects just kind of like dominate. On Earth, sure. Yeah, I, mean, I can't think of anything more alien-looking to me on 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 our planet than an insect. So it follows again, for me. Hugo Weaving. Well, it's <laughs> just the the basic the basic insect uh, body type. You know, the, the exoskeleton, the way it's shaped. It's clearly an extremely successful model. It's very efficient in right. this environment. Right. We don't know about others, sure. but it 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 works like a charm here on Earth. I, to be more serious than my Hugo Weaving. I think jellyfish actually would yeah. not be too far. Jellies. I've read something. I like say that. jellyfish. I mean jellies. So sure. Don't don't correct me. I know the I know the terminology. The no, yeah, I think I've re- I've read somebody saying that. Yeah, I, jellies. I think would be uh, not incredibly surprising. Although whether they would be on the macro scale or be kind of like a microscopic version well, of that's, that. Well, that's that's another thing. Surprising. I mean, the the discussion. I mean, I think that absolutely life does exist. Um, whether other life exists on the macro scale that we will ever encounter is more mm, to yeah. me. But 
Um, here, here's one other thing that I do think is is pretty interesting, and I also think kind of plausible. Um, have you all played the games in the Half Life series? Yeah. No. no. I played Portal. Are you familiar with the concept of the combine? No, Joe. Please tell me what is the combine. Well, okay. So villains in let's say like Half Life Two, yeah, um, are not just one species, but it's sort of a federation of species, and you can't necessarily tell if they're different species that are sort of allied or some have conquered others. But the, basically, the Earth is invaded by. Um, uh, by a an army of lots of different types of alien creatures. Hmm. It's sort of like in, in in Halo, but with um a, a little bit more um insectoid in in basic anatomy, I would say. Whereas well, whereas think... the, the the creatures in Halo are those those bipedal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Halo, but yeah, the Covenant in Halo. Yeah, is what you're talking about. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, I haven't played Halo, so okay, I don't know. So. Okay, but um, so Sh- she'll translate for but, me. But basically, Although what the I, flood the flood are, are inter- <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. Well, just basically, what I'm trying to say is that not necessarily any of the the specific anatomical design of any of those aliens, but the idea that it's not just one species from one planet, but it's a sort of federation of mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. life forms uh, that have banded together. And I do think that's an interesting thing to consider because most of the time it's always just one species that invades. Now, I will say, because this this brought to mind something else, the idea of the alien species landing on Earth and then immediately dying because of our Earth germs (laughs) is kind of ridiculous (laughs) because uh, you're talking about a completely independently evolved life form. So the compatibility between any sort of virus or bacteria on Earth and an alien uh, uh, physiology is it's astronomically right. If my dog like, can't catch my cold, then why would an alien be right? Able to? So it's it, yeah. The odds of that. In fact, I had a discussion with this uh, with someone who who specializes in biology and talked about this because I, I was talking about the computer virus level because we were talking about Independence Day, right? So computer virus from Earth being able to infect an alien technology is ridiculous because you, that assumes that both are working under the same principles. Right, the aliens in Independence Day use Macs. Right, uh, yeah, or, or just binary computer science. Like they, It's using the same basic computer science that we use. That's that's a huge assumption. Same sort of thing with, uh, with physical virus, like actual bacteria and viruses. Uh, so I wouldn't expect that to happen. Now, that's not to say that alien life wouldn't somehow otherwise be deadly to us. It could be that it's toxic. You know, it could be that whatever uh, chemical compounds make up this particular alien life form are hazardous to us. That but they it, exhale sulfuric acid. Or, or that they, you know, that just that maybe they wouldn't even be able to live or to come to earth in any way because their version of atmosphere would be totally different from ours or, or maybe they're terribly allergic to water. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. Yeah. Well then they shouldn't invade an earth that is mostly made of the stuff. Okay. Well we've reached signs. So I think that means it's a sign that the end is near. Yeah. I believe I agree wholeheartedly. Well, this wraps up our speculative episode of Forward Thinking. We will be doing more of these in the future. We've got a whole list of episodes that we've kind of brainstormed, and uh, we're very much excited to bring some of them to life in the next 
coming weeks and months. So I uh, hope you guys stay tuned. Meanwhile, if you want to join in on all the fun, go to fwthinking.com. That's the site where we've got all the videos, the blogs, the podcasts. We've got articles that uh, relate to some of the things we talk about. Uh, we also have uh, our, our social media links that you need to go to. That's fwthinking. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Google+. Come and join the conversation. Be part of the future. Don't let us... Don't. We don't want to have to go and drag you kicking and screaming into the future. Stride into it with us. We're excited to be there, and we know you will be too. So join us, and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.